All right, we are going to be back in our study of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Last week, we began our study by reminding you that nothing stays the same. The days pass into weeks, the weeks into months, the months into years, the years into decades, then centuries and millennia. Kingdoms rise and fall, and rulers come and go, and empires gain power and then crumble, and people groups have their glory days, and then they fade into oblivion and even disappear. And nothing stays the same, we said last week, except the character of God. I read to you Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Psalm 119, 18, or sorry, 119, 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The one and only true and living God is always the same. From eternity past to eternity future, the character of God never changes. He is who He is. He is who He has always been. He is who He will always be. The true and living God is always the same. God's Word is eternal. It is supernatural. It will never be destroyed. It will stand forever. So in the midst of an ever-changing world, God and His Word never change. And in this ever-changing temporary world, there are only two things I've told you before, I told you last week, tell you again today, only two things that will exist forever that are here with us in this world right now. That is the Word of God and the souls of human beings. After our bodies die and our souls leave our earthly bodies behind to go back to the dust from which God created us, we will exist forever, either in heaven or hell. And we must regularly remind ourselves that with all of the changes of life and with all of the changes in the nations of the world, we have to keep telling ourselves that nothing changes except the word of, except the, the, except the I'm sorry, the character of the true and living God, and nothing in this world lasts forever except the word of God and the souls of people. I believe there are challenging days ahead for the people of God, so I just encourage you to keep our thoughts and our priorities on eternity and continue to ask God for mercy and strength as we invest in the Word of God and in the souls of people. And as we look at the second half of the book of, da of, the, of, of Daniel chapter 2 today, we see very clearly that there is one thing in this world that is always changing. And that is human government. God established and ordained the foundation of human government in Genesis 9 when he established with Noah the concept of capital punishment for the crime of murder. The Apostle Paul in Romans 13 also clearly defined one of the purposes of human government as placing restraints on the sinfulness of man, which is what God was establishing with Noah in Genesis 9. Genesis 9 was the beginning of a, of a code of law for people, which would be then enforced by other people. 
And ever since that time, human beings in every culture of the world have established codes of law that govern their behavior. Some are very basic, some are very complex, but codes of conduct exist in every culture of the world. But human government is, is a reality that we all live with, for better or worse. God revealed his, his actually God's ideal government to Moses in Exodus 19. When he said in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, he said, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples of, of the, all the earth, because all the earth is mine, and you'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a, and a holy nation. These are the words you'll speak to the sons of Israel. And a few verses later on, the people responded to Moses and said, All that the Lord has said we will do, which of course you know they did not. Isn't that, as we jokingly say, famous last words, huh? Oh yes, all that the Lord has told us we will do. Yeah, right, for a week or two, yeah. yeah so, and, and on and on and on. And of course, those of you who remember Old Testament history know that they did not do what they had repeatedly promised to do. But you know what? God's ideal government, he, he said it there, is, is a theocracy. The, the rule of God, that's what theocracy means. Theos, the word God, and, and, and then the rule. Uh, there was two Greek words put together. The rule of God, a theocracy. Democracy, or some form of democracy, is not God's ideal form of government. God's ideal is that we obey Him and obey His laws and do whatever He says to do. That, uh, that is a theocracy, the, the rule of God, and we'll soon see from our scripture today when we look into this dream of Nebuchadnezzar that a theocracy is coming. It's on the way. All forms and styles of human government all around the world, they, they all have one fatal flaw, and that's that they're all administered by sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As you know that verse in Romans 3.23, we're all sinners. That's why we need the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when sinners are in control, which they always are because that's all we have to work with, there will always be some element of injustice. Now the closer we can come to in our legal codes to God's standards of righteousness, then the better things will be. But sinners can never rule perfectly, and they never have. But when God called Abraham in Genesis 12, and he promised to make his descendants a great nation, God's plan was for a theocracy, uh, to be a human government testimony to the world. That was God's plan for Israel, for this, this theocracy, the rule of God, to be a human government testimony to the world. What an amazing concept. That there would be a nation of people ruled by God, obeying His laws, keeping His commandments as a testimony to the entire world. And of course, at the same time, in God's eternal infinite wisdom, He knew that the Hebrew people would fail. They're sinners just like all the rest of us. And God also revealed that the Hebrew people, because of their rebellion and their disobedience to him, they would be temporarily set aside on the world scene. And that non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, would dominate them nationally. If you want to read a long teaching of that, you can read Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. 
some very heavy-duty theology there, but Romans 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul explains that God had, had, had chosen the Jewish nation to be their testimony to the world for him, but because of their rebellion and rejection, he has temporarily set them aside until, until the time of the Gentiles is completed. Jerusalem would be controlled by the Gentiles. In fact, Jesus said in Luke chapter 21 that, that Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles. And this is the quote, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The Apostle Paul said in that passage I just referenced in Romans 11, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You see, the Hebrew people are going to be scattered among the Gentile nations, God said, and then I'm going to regather them one day back in the promised land, and a descendant of King David is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. And there will be a true theocracy, the rule of God, one that would never fail, one that would be established and would never be destroyed. And when God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Jerusalem, as we saw back in Daniel 1.1, the times of the Gentiles began. Some of the Jews went back to the land after the 70-year captivity, but they still remained under the dominion of various Gentile empires until Jerusalem was totally destroyed in A.D. 70, and it was trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until 1948. They're now being regathered in the land, as many of you know, but they only control a tiny portion of the Promised Land. And they're still surrounded by Gentile nations who want to annihilate them. And they still don't have every square inch of Jerusalem. You've still got the Temple Mount that, that, is, that is controlled by, by the Muslims. They can't build the Temple yet until they get that all straightened out. We're still in the times of the Gentiles, but the times are changing. And the, the, the times of the Gentiles are not going to end completely until Jesus Christ returns in glory and destroys the armies of the world at Armageddon and sets up his earthly kingdom. We'll see a little bit of beginning flavor of that in our passage today. And the Apostle John's great message there in the book of Revelation, he records in chapter 11 of Revelation, he records loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. If you've listened to Handel's Messiah, you heard that repeated many times. Great thought there from Revelation 11. And this overview of the times of the Gentiles is what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was all about. This dream we talked about last week, it's coming up, that, that, that's what the dream was. God is, God is revealing uh, to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel this great overview of world history in the times of the Gentiles. I've got a bunch of world history that I have to share with you today. I hope I don't bore the daylights out of you, but you're going to get it anyway. So now one way, so hang on. But, in the, but let's, let's read our passage here. Daniel chapter 2. And we are going to start to read in verse 27, which is right about the section that we left off with last week. We looked at the first half of uh, this uh, of Daniel 2. We're going to look at the dream and the interpretation of it today. So Daniel 2 and verse 27. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But... 
the great phrase, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes who make known the interpretations of the king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and made you a ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall, after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, or the masses of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain. And its interpretation is sure. In this statue, we see four Gentile world empires. The first one is very easy to identify because God told Daniel who it was. (laughs) He said, the gold head, Nebuchadnezzar, it's you. So the gold head represents Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. Interestingly, Babylon was referred to as a city of gold. Isaiah 14.4 calls Babylon the golden city. Jeremiah 51.7 says Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hands. The famous Greek historian Herodotus, when he was traveling through Babylon about a hundred years after Nebuchadnezzar was dead, he indicated he had never seen so much gold in all of his life. Gold all over Babylon. And God says to Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. His kingdom lasted about 70 years. 
The world empire that followed Babylon was the Medes and the Persians. Thus you have the chest and two arms. Uh, the division of the Medes and the Persians. Not an absolute monarchy as Nebuchadnezzar had, where he ruled by a king, but something that, that uh, students of political science call an oligarchy, meaning ruled by a small group of men. The Medo-Persian Empire was, was much, much bigger land area than even Nebuchadnezzar's. It lasted about 200 years. Then the, uh, the empire that followed them w was the Greek Empire. The Medes and the Persian Empire was destroyed by the Greek conqueror that everyone's probably heard of, Alexander the Great, even if you don't know much about it, you're sure you've heard the name. Alexander's armies were equipped, interestingly, with helmets and chest plates and swords and shields that were made of bronze. Fascinating that the uh, first time in history for that type of military armor. And this prophecy mentions the, uh, the, the Bronze Empire 275 years before it ever came into existence. Greece was, was an aristocracy, meaning it was ruled by nobility, ruled by families of rulers. Uh, just, it's kind of a fascinating thing, you know, that, that when, when God gave this dream to Nebuchadnezzar, there was no way that he could have guessed any of this. But the, and we'll talk about that some more in just a moment. Of, of greatest importance to us is the fourth empire, because we're still part of it. And I'll explain why as we go along. The Romans conquered the Greek empire a little piece at a time, from about 200 B.C. till about 14 B.C., just before Jesus was born. There was a big pivotal battle in 146 B.C. where they took Corinth and the whole Greek peninsula, and a final battle about 30 B.C., uh, which, uh, which involved the, uh, the famous Cleopatra that we read so much about uh, and, and her armies in Egypt, they were wiped out. And, and the, the Iron Legions of Rome, as they were called, controlled every square inch then of territory. By the time Jesus was born, they, 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 they controlled every square inch of territory that had belonged to the Babylonians, the Greeks, and most everything the Persians, the Persians had controlled. And in these short verses, the word iron is used 14 times in this passage, describing Rome, the Iron Legions of Rome, they called them, as they broke in pieces and crushed everybody else. And as I said, when God gave this dream to Nebuchadnezzar, there, there, there was no way he could have possibly guessed any of this. Persia was at that time a province of Babylon. The Greeks were a group of uh, just a, a, a few cities a thousand miles away, competing among themselves. Rome was a tiny little village on the banks of the Tiber River in northern Italy. Only the sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent God of the universe could know what the future Gentile kingdoms of the world were going to become. Anyone who has read the story of the Roman Empire knows that they were dominated by, the, by this passion to rule the world, and they had the power to achieve it. The Roman legions were known everywhere for their ability to fight, to march in and to overwhelm all the opposition, and, and utilizing the little short iron sword, which became the famous mark of the Roman soldier, they basically stormed through the whole world. And over a 150-year period, they dominated every single kingdom known in the Western world. The chief mark of Rome was, to, was, was its will to, to, to conquer and to dominate, and the Roman government was marked with this passion to establish colonies and, 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 and keep them by military power. 
That characteristic of Rome continued throughout the history of Western Europe, even after Rome itself as a city had crumbled. And you know, European nations have been for the last, for hundreds of years, have been colonizing other people groups to the end of the earth. And with all the colonizing came the necessity to expand military power, to protect all the trade routes and the colonies from being overwhelmed by others. And all of the European nations developed powerful militaries to, to, in order to protect all the colonies that they had established. About 300 years after Christ, the Roman Empire divided into two portions, which would correspond to the two legs of iron in this image. One division was in the west. I should not think of me thinking you're the west. I should think of you the west as you're looking at the map, okay? One division was in the west, centered in Rome. The other one was in the east, with Constantinople as its capital. Constantinople is now called, uh, oh, good grief. It's in the modern-day country of Turkey, Istanbul, thank you. And, uh, and it became the Byzantine Empire, which colonized toward the north into Russia, and over into east into Persia, Iran, and Iraq, spread Byzantine culture all throughout the, all throughout the world. In the west, uh, the, the empire centered in Rome, and it controlled all of Europe and most of North Africa. And when the city of Rome fell in 476, the Roman Empire, kind of for a period of time, became a religious entity. We call it the Roman Church, the Roman Catholic Church, as people know it today. And they continued to politically dominate the kings of France and Germany and Spain and Great Britain and Portugal for centuries. And all of those countries of what we used to think of as the Roman Empire began to reach out into what we call now North and South America, conquering and colonizing. And you know, today, if you look at the map of the world, nearly every single country Every single political entity in North America, South America, Central America, Africa, and most of Asia was begun by the colonizing efforts of one of the nations of Eastern or Western Roman Empire. The empire has evolved and redesigned itself in many ways, but the stamp of the Roman system is everywhere. Now, I'm not saying it's all good. I'm just saying it all happened, just as God told Daniel in 600 B.C. Being conquered and colonized and restructured is a very painful process. And it involves a lot of devastation and destruction and loss of life. I'm not saying it's all good. I'm just saying that it happened exactly the way God said it was going to happen. The eastern branch of the empire, as it morphed and redesigned and changed, it, it spread east and north. And the western branch of the empire, it spread its influence to the west and to the south. And all of these colonies that all these nations of Europe had all over the world, they were all set up with constitutions and some sort of representative democracy and legal rights and voting opportunities and court systems and military structures that are all connected to the Roman world of the Lord Jesus Christ today. And all of this continued on for hundreds of years until 1918 at the end of World War I. Then something new began to develop. We have reached now the feet of the statue. Iron mixed with clay, eventually evolving into the ten toes. Look again at verse 41. 
Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay." The clay is obviously the opposite of the iron. Iron pictures the imperialistic attitude seeking to dominate and rule by military force and economic strength. Clay, on the other hand, is weak and pliable and easily molded. Many, many Bible students identify the clay as the principle of democracy. Now that may kind of irritate us because we like democracy. We like individual rights. Uh, But the clay, I believe, is probably representative of democracy. There's a famous quote I'd like to read you called, Why Democracies Fail. This is the quote. Well known if you've studied much history, and I've loved to study history for years and years and years, but this is a fairly well-known quote. Democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves money out of the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidate promising the most benefit from the public treasury, with the result that democracy always collapses over loose monetary policy, followed usually by a dictatorship or a monarchy. Now that sounds like it was written today. But actually, it was written 250 years ago by a professor who was writing about the Greeks. The USA didn't even exist when he wrote that quote. But but this expresses the true nature of democracies. We're all selfish sinners. And if we think politicians will give us more stuff, we vote for them, regardless of the ultimate consequences. People are like clay. We are moldable and pliable. And and whoever controls the flow of information is going to control most of the people. We see that in every election cycle anywhere in the world where people can vote. So this last stage of Gentile human government is going to be a mixture of authoritative power, the iron, and democracy, the clay. And these two things are going to struggle and struggle and attempt to mingle together. Uh, There's still going to be that drive to control the world as there's always been during the times of the Gentiles. But there's going to be this struggle, this tension between the authoritarian iron and the the democratic thoughts of, of the clay. And in 1918, at the end of World War I, the League of Nations was formed to end all war and bring peace to the world, which lasted about 20 years. And in World War II, the United Nations was formed to bring peace and harmony to the world. In 1975, seven wealthy and powerful countries formed what we call the G7, the Group of Seven, to figure out how to control the finances and the economies of the world so everyone could live in peace and prosperity. In 1999, the G20, the Group of 20, was founded of 20 different countries to to control finances and and wealth creation and climate change and trade on the world stage. 
you watch much news, you say, you know, the president went to the G7 summit today. Every year they have one. Or the president is today at the G20 summit. And they went to one. Or, or this big one now, the World Economic Forum. Each meets every year in Davos, Switzerland. And all of the billionaires of the world work at designing ways to restructure the world's governments so they can take control of everything and save the planet. Still going on. The times of the Gentiles. World domination. The Roman systems. And today, there are 193 nations in the United Nations, all with the stamp of Roman design in their law and their government. There's enough iron of authority to threaten and dominate, and enough clay of democracy to weaken and paralyze so that the iron can't get everything done the way the iron wants to do it. The nations of the world continue to struggle with internal conflict between the iron and the clay, the authoritarians who are desperate to control the world for its own good, and the people who want their voices to be heard and their rights to be recognized. And again, I'm not saying what's good or bad about the iron and the clay. I'm just saying that's what God said would happen, and it's happening. Today, in 2021, we are in the feet of the statue. Babylon's gone. Medes and Persians are gone. The Greeks are gone. The Roman system is still going on, morphing into its east and west, into the feet of clay, eventually to the ten toes. Today in 2021, we are in the feet of the statue. One day soon, there will not be a G7 or a G20 or a European Union or NATO or the United Nations or the World Economic Forum. There's going to be a G10 that they might not call it the G10, but somehow, some way, ten nations or ten world leaders, Daniel said in the days of those kings of iron and clay, there's going to be ten nations and ten leaders of those nations who are going to rise to dominate the rest of the world. And Daniel says, in the days of those rulers, Jesus Christ will return. And this final world, world kingdom I want to share with you as we wind up our thoughts today is going to, there's several characteristics about this final world kingdom that's going to be led by Jesus Christ and is going to be a theocracy. God revealed it to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel's interpretation. This is what it is. The first one, the final world empire is going to have a supernatural origin. All the other empires all had human origin. This final one is going to have a supernatural origin. Remember, as he saw the stone cut out without hands. No human source. This stone supernaturally is cut out of the mountain. And, and, and I don't know if you remember this or not, but all of your Old Testament altars were to be built with unhewn stones. No human cutting or designing to fit. They were all, all, you were supposed to build all the altars of sacrifice with stones just as God had made them. And I know you know this, the Bible refers to Jesus Christ as a rock or a stone 14 times. Jesus Christ is the stone cut out without hands. This final world empire, Daniel says, is gonna, says to Nebuchadnezzar, it'll be a supernatural kingdom. Then this final world empire is going to bring sudden and severe judgment. You remember from the, uh, from the dream that the stone crashes into the feet of the statue. But it doesn't just crush the clay and the iron mix. 
The gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, and the clay are all ground to powder. They all blow away in the wind, leaving no trace that they were ever there. Look back at that. Uh, uh, in fact, that is in verse 35. Verse 34, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. There's going to be sudden and severe judgment. They're all going to be ground to powder. They're going to blow away in the wind, leaving no trace that any of the world's kingdoms were ever there. They'll be totally broken and consumed by the final kingdom. This tells me that this was not fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. Some people teach this. They say this was all fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. And Jesus came and he broke the power of Rome and his kingdom is filling the world in some sort of spiritual sense. That's not what this is picturing. This is not a gradual process of the gospel taking over the world. Remnants of Rome and cultural flavors of Rome and legal structures of Rome and political ideologies of Rome are still with us all over the world. And when the stone strikes the statue of the Gentile empires, Daniel says there will be nothing left, no trace that they were ever there. This kingdom is still yet to come. And then finally, this world kingdom is going to be sovereign and eternal. It's going to be of supernatural origin. It's going to be a sudden and severe judgment. It's going to be sovereign and eternal. Daniel says this kingdom will break and consume all the empires of the world, but it will never be destroyed. It's going to fill the whole earth, and it's going to stand forever. Now, what's all this mean for you and me? You say, wow, that's kind of an interesting world history historical area. Yeah, it is. And I'll tell you again, we are in the feet of the statue. Better start looking for the ten toes. I think we're moving down toward the end of the feet. We've already got structures designed to dominate the whole world that are being formed in all of these Roman-style governments all over the planet, mixed with iron and clay. You've got some authoritarians. You've got some guys who want democracy. They're all mixed in there together. They're all fighting each other. They're all trying to coexist. And all of these do, and we're not colonizing people anymore like they did for hundreds of years. Now we're organizing all of these Roman-style nations to try to figure out how we can control everything about everybody and save the planet. The iron and the clay are still trying to mix together, and we are in the feet. What does all this mean now for you and me? Simply this, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, be confident. There may be suffering and troubles ahead. Regardless of what happens in this world, God has always been in control and He still is. God told all of this to Daniel 600 years before Christ was born. It's all coming to pass just exactly as He said. God has always been in control and He still is. So trust God and be confident. And then the next challenge is simply this. You better be ready. Because we are living in the time of the feet of the statue. No one knows how much more time we have. The Lord Jesus may delay His coming, or things may begin to unfold very quickly. 
Just look at what's happened in our, in our, just in our country in the last 18 months. The ten toes may be just around the corner. Things can happen very fast. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you ready to meet the Lord? If not, I plead with you to get ready. Repent of your sin and turn to Christ. He is our only hope. Because one day in the not too distant future, the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. I plead with you to be ready. Let's pray. Lord, we certainly don't know any specific timetable. In fact, you said yourself in the Gospels, no man knows the day or the hour of the coming of the Son of Man. But Lord, we can certainly look at these prophecies and we can certainly see things are lining up, things are moving that direction, things are happening just exactly as you told Daniel 600 B.C. You told him what the, what the story and what the overview was going to be of the times of the Gentiles. And it's happened just exactly as you said it would. And it's unfolding exactly as you said it would. Lord, help us to be ready. I know most of the folks here possibly or probably know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Lord, we have many friends and loved ones who don't. And there may be someone here today who is not sure that they know Christ as their Savior. Lord, I don't know how much more time we have. I don't want to scare anybody. I don't want to try and pressure anybody through fear. But I honestly don't know how much more time we have. And I just pray, Lord, that as we see these things unfolding and we see the nations of the world organizing themselves into these authoritarian systems, wanting to take control and wanting to save the earth and wanting from in all these other methods and plans and ways to try to control everyone's individual lives as we see the iron and the clay struggling and, and the authoritarians trying to take more control and, 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 and the clay of the people uh, trying to resist with more democratic ideals. Lord, we know one day those ten nations, those ten toes are going to arise and in the days of those kings, Jesus Christ is going to come back in power and glory. So Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be faithful in our lives and faithful in our witnessing and faithful in our testimonies. May we encourage folks to come to Christ. May we plead with them to put their faith in the Lord Jesus. Lord, help us, uh, we who know you, to be confident to trust God and be confident. And Lord, may we all be ready. For one day, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.